Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, thank you for joining me this Monday, November 20th. Yes, it is the countdown to Thanksgiving. I hope you I hope you are ready. Um, might not be able to avoid some of those tough conversations uh, this Thanksgiving, but maybe we can um, find a way through it together. What do you think? Um, over the weekend, yesterday, I'm sure you saw the obituaries posted for former First Lady Rosalind Carter, wife of Jimmy Carter. Rosalind Carter was diagnosed with dementia in May. She um, went into hospice care Friday. Her husband, Jimmy Carter, has already been in hospice care for a, a time now as he decided to stop treatment for the... Uh, rather aggressive form of melanoma he's been fighting for a very long time. Rosalind Carter went into hospice on Friday and passed away very quickly at the age of 96. One thing that I didn't realize until I started reading all the different obituaries, Rosalind Carter basically created the job of First Lady as it exists today. Previously, most of our first ladies were expected to be just hostesses. Oh, let's have a tea. Let's have a dinner and I'll um, make sure everything goes smoothly. Rosalind Carter was really a partner to Jimmy Carter. And she did something that at the time was groundbreaking. She would sit in on cabinet meetings. Much to the dismay of some of the people in those meetings who in her <laughs> when she wrote her biography, she said, you know, that there were a lot of those folks who tried to uh, start rumors or leaked to the press that somehow I was making all the decisions and just simply telling Jimmy what to do. She said, clearly, those people didn't know Jimmy Carter, but she wanted to do something meaningful. She didn't just want to host teas while she was in the White House. She didn't simply want to redecorate. And so she really created the position of the modern first lady. We expect now our first ladies, well, what's your, what's your cause? What is, what is the thing that you're going to work toward, you know? And we expect them to be Involved, maybe not <laughs> in the day-to-day running of the government, but we expect our first ladies to have their own agenda of things that they want to use the office to accomplish and to work very hard to accomplish those goals. Rosalind Carter really created the template for that. She was a really admirable woman in so many ways and um, she developed an interest in promoting mental health and mental health services and, and as bad as we think things are now during the Carter years 
mental health was um, not something people talked about, not something people ever admitted getting help for. She was really an extraordinary woman. And uh, one reporter who was with them the night he lost his reelection bid to Ronald Reagan said, you know, President Carter really didn't seem that upset, that bitter. And Rosalind said to the reporter, that's okay, I'm bitter enough for both of us. They had a marriage that was a true partnership in many ways. A marriage of love and respect They were really incredible people all around. And I, you know, was alive during the Carter years. But I didn't realize the glass ceilings that Rosalind Carter was breaking. Yeah, she stepped on some toes. (laughs) Supposedly, one White House staffer had a list of people they were afraid of. And they told somebody else, Rosalind Rosalind Carter tops the list. She was a southern lady, but she was referred to as an iron fist in a velvet glove. Sometimes having a partner like that, though, makes it easier for the other person, Jimmy Carter, to be a little softer, be a little more easygoing. It takes... It takes a little bit of the pressure off. Long story short, I thought I knew who Rosalind Carter was. Long story short, I didn't. She broke ground. She accomplished so much more than I I realized. And, you know, it's funny, like sitting in on the cabinet meetings and people saying, oh, you know, she tells Jimmy what to do. She wears the pants in the family. The women who break that ceiling have to put up with so much crap. Now, as I said, we expect the First Lady to have an agenda separate from her husband's, but an agenda that is equally important. Rosalind Carter gave us that. Took a lot of grief to get there, but she did. We owe her a debt. Some people said, well, you know, Jimmy and and Rosalind were very religious, and because of that, you know, they, while they didn't support an abortion ban like you're seeing today, they made it clear that that was not part of their faith. But they never tried to impose their faith on anybody else. That's what bothers me right now. If your religion tells you to behave a certain way, to do certain things, to not do other things, Great. Wonderful. You know, you be that. But don't try to make me follow the beliefs, the tenets of your religion. I have my own beliefs, okay? And that's one of the things that I think is really dangerous right now. There are so many people talking so openly about why we why we need to get rid of the separation between church and state. Mm -mm -mm. We were founded 
as a country where everyone can follow whatever faith they want to. The people who came here from England came in part to get away from religious persecution. And now sometimes it feels like their descendants are trying to persecute everybody else. Maybe it's just me that feels that way. So uh, other news today is President Biden's birthday. He is 81. And it was a big day at the White House this morning. Yes, uh, this morning it was turkey time, or perhaps I should say, let's pardon the turkeys time. This year's White House turkeys are named Liberty and Bell, and they showed up at the White House today <laughs> to get the what has now become annual presidential pardon. Listen to Joe Biden. I hereby pardon Liberty and Bell. All right. Congratulations, birds. Congratulations. Look, now let me conclude on a serious note about why we have Thanksgiving in the first place. To remind ourselves, and we sometimes forget this, how we have so much to be thankful for as a nation. This week, we'll gather with the people we love and the traditions that each of us have built up in our own families. We'll also think about the loved ones we lost, including just yesterday when we lost former First Lady Rosalind Carter, who walked her own path, inspiring a nation and the world along the way. And let's remind ourselves that we're blessed to live in the greatest nation on this face of the earth. That's what I see when I travel America. I met so many incredible people who do such extraordinary things, including just yesterday, Jill and I visited the largest naval station in the world, Norfolk Naval Station and in Virginia, to serve what they call Friendsgiving, Thanksgiving meal to thousand servicemen and their families. We owe them. We owe them big. And today's ahead, our families and friends travel and come together to celebrate Thanksgiving. We can all give thanks to the gift that is our nation. And let's remember, we are the United States of America, and there is nothing, 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 I mean this sincerely, nothing beyond our capacity when we work together. We've never come out of a situation, a bad circumstance, not in, without being better off when we come through it. And this is always who we are as Americans. So happy Thanksgiving. God bless you all, and may God protect our troops. Thank you, thank you, thank you. President Biden sparing the White House turkeys, Liberty and Bell, and uh, reminding us uh, of the message that he conveys everywhere he goes. He believes in this country. He thinks our best days are still to come. And he is going to do everything in his power to get them here sooner rather than later. Let's take a break. We'll be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Oh, uh, one other thing that I want to uh, let you know, a couple of scheduling things. Um, from 3.30 to 4.30, we're going to be talking to political science professor William Muck. Uh, we will probably open the phone lines. It's going to be a wide-ranging discussion on everything going on in the world right now. But I also want to let you know 
that at 4.30, we are going to introduce a new sponsored segment that's going to be on once a month, and it's going to be called Ask an Attorney. Uh, Tony Murray is going to be here. You hear his spots here on WCPT. Well, he is uh, going to join us once a month to answer your questions free of charge, um, just like I when I bring in David Hochberg, who I think David Hochberg is he's scheduled for next week. Yes, he is scheduled for next week, Tuesday, the 28th. Um, so just like you send in your questions for David Hochberg, send me a text 773 763-9278. Okay, if you've never communicated with us before and you just didn't have a pencil to write down that number, think of it like this, 773-763-WCPT. So all you have to remember is 773-763. And the rest of it is just WCPT. I'm going to keep an eye on uh, the texts, like I said, Tony Murray is going to be here today at 4.30. We're going to initiate our first Ask a Lawyer segment where you can get free advice, okay? So I will keep an eye on those texts and make sure I copy off all of your questions so that when Tony is here at 4.30, we can all get some free legal advice. 773-763-9278. You just put that, open up your little text icon, put that number in, and shoot me a message. Okay, that's at 4.30 today. Right now, I want to take a real quick look at, uh, at Congress. Um, remember, there was a vote to potentially oust George Santos from Congress, and the vote failed, and there were Democrats that voted against it because, as our good friend Jeff Jackson from North Carolina said, there was an ethics investigation that wasn't finished, and there was a criminal investigation that wasn't finished. And whatever you think of George Santos, he deserves due process. Well, that ethics investigation did finish. It was scathing. It was 56 pages of all the things that they were able to find that George Santos did wrong. Things like misspending campaign contributions. He apparently spent $3,000 on Botox. Hey, you know, I've had Botox before. That's a, that's a lot of Botox. I can't even imagine that much Botox. It just staggers the mind. Um, he also had an OnlyFans account, which um, I don't know if OnlyFans does other things, um, but a lot of it is uh, sexual content. And uh, he used campaign contributions for that, too. Well, the ethics report is out. It is damning. Uh, they have forwarded their report the Ethics Committee, to the Department of Justice. Clearly, they believe that there are criminal charges that can be filed against George Santos, as well as their finding, their own finding, that um, at the very least, he's guilty of fraud. 
So what does that mean for George Santos continuing on as the one of the Republican congresspeople from New York? Oh, Democratic Congressman Jeff Jackson is from North Carolina, and he's the one I've shared these videos. And he'll be like, I'm in Congress. This is what I see. This is what it's really like. This is the part you know about. This is the part you don't know about. And just kind of a straightforward, like if you're talking to your neighbor or, or one of your friends who happen to be in Congress. He um, posted a video recently where he talked, he talked about Congress in general, and that's kind of interesting. But he also talked about what is going to happen now with George Santos. Listen to this. Last time you heard from me, I told you I had just voted against kicking George Santos out of Congress because he hadn't received due process yet. But I also told you that we were about to get the final report from the ethics investigation into him and that when we did, he would have gotten his due process and it would strengthen the case against him because we would have all these new details. And that's exactly what happened. The report came out last week and it is wild. He was spending campaign money on stuff like Botox and luxury clothing even an OnlyFans account. That's very much against the rules. You can't do that. When we come back from Thanksgiving, we're probably going to kick him out of Congress, and I'm going to vote for it because we did it the right way. It wasn't pitchforks and torches. It was due process. Kicking him out will be good for Congress, but bad for the new speaker. It's going to take a narrow majority and make it even more narrow, and that is a nightmare for any speaker who has a flank that is willing to take down your whole agenda, which is exactly what's happened so far this year. The truth is, we have gotten almost nothing done all year. All we've really done is narrowly avoid one default and two shutdowns. Why? Because for anything to happen, it has to be bipartisan. One party controls the House, the other controls the Senate. Anything that isn't bipartisan is dead on arrival. So if you have a group that would rather do nothing than compromise, then nothing gets done. But there might be some good news here. We almost had a government shutdown last week, as usual, but the way we avoided it was by doing exactly what the last speaker did, which was passing a temporary budget that lasts for a few months. That's exactly what got the last speaker fired. But it's not going to get the new speaker fired. Why not? Because if they fire him, they're going to get someone less conservative. The big speaker fight last month was basically the majority party finding the most conservative guy they could all agree on, and they found this guy. So if they fire him, the next guy is probably going to be someone closer to the center, which the right flank does not want. Which means, kind of by accident, the new very conservative speaker might be able to do some more bipartisan deals because he might not get punished for it. To be clear, the right flank would be furious with him, as they are right now. I watched them on the House floor yell about it, and they're on TV right now blasting him and threatening to fire him. But I don't think they're going to do it. Which means he can make some moves that the last guy couldn't, and that could include some bipartisan deals. I'm not saying it's likely. I'm just saying it's possible. We'll find out together, and I'll keep you posted. I love this guy. I love the way he breaks down what is happening and does it clearly and simply. God, I wish we had reporters who could do this, who would do this for us instead of just getting the newest controversy, the newest soundbite, getting reaction, uh, you know, that kind of that that reporting. I don't know how they feel about doing it, but watching it exhausts me. Jeff Jackson saying, you know what? Here's the deal. 
Uh, yeah, this uh, Mike Johnson might be problematic, but he might also be the only guy right now who has the power to get anything done because the hard right. And um, I think, was it Marjorie Taylor Greene already called? She didn't actually put together a resolution to vacate the chair, but she yelled loud and long that she was going to get rid of Mike Johnson. But But he's absolutely right. If they get rid of Mike Johnson, probably worst case scenario is they literally cannot vote on anybody else. There's nobody else that is capable of getting the votes because Jeff Jackson is right. They have got a speaker right now who is very, 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 very ultra far right. They're not going to get anybody like him if they kick him out. So... We shall see, won't we? It's going to be interesting. Uh, Coming up in just a couple of minutes, we are going to be talking about climate change. I read this just stunning article in the Wall Street Journal, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, that there had been a thunderstorm in Australia. And suddenly, right after the thunderstorm, hospitals were overflowing with people having severe asthma attacks and allergy attacks, like a 600% increase over what they would normally expect. And in this country, we have some similar data, only interestingly, whereas in Australia, the problems occurred right after the thunderstorm. Here in this country, they seem to occur right before a thunderstorm. We're going to talk about that and what could be behind it and what that means for climate change or what climate change means for asthma when we come back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Allison Steiner is a professor of climate and space sciences at the University of Michigan and the co-author of several studies on the effects of warming on airborne pollen pollens 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 professor steiner thank you for joining us today thank you for having me did you happen to see that article that i was mentioning earlier in the wall street journal where they observed that there was this big thunderstorm and immediately after they were hospitals were overwhelmed with people with severe allergy attacks and asthma attacks Yeah, so this is a phenomenon known as thunderstorm asthma, um, and it really came to, I would say, international attention a few years ago. In 2016, there was an extremely large event in Melbourne, Australia, and it was the coincidence of a very large thunderstorm coming across right at the peak of their grass pollen season, and it led to thousands of people rushing to the emergency room, and unfortunately, several people died in that event due due to acute respiratory um, distress. And so, what we've been trying to study here at Michigan is understanding how these types of um, events happen, and so what it seems like is that when pollen gets swept up into sort of these larger storms and gets brought into clouds and come in contact with water, the pollen grains can 
break apart or rupture and create these tinier particles than are present when we just have it emitted directly from plants. And one of the reasons why this is important is because these smaller particles that happen during this break apart or rupture process, they're smaller and they can reach further down into your airways and trigger this very acute asthma response. You know, maybe I should back up a minute. Explain what is pollen? Yeah, so pollen is actually the small particles that are released from plants as a part of reproduction. Um, and those, and so a lot those of tr- are the little particles that bees gather up? Yeah, so the plants use different strategies to try to reproduce. So some plants use bees or birds um, as a way of moving the pollen from plant to plant to fertilize. And so the pollen grain actually contains the male genetic material, and then it'll fertilize the female part of the plant. So some types of plants use bees to transfer that pollen, and and other types, and what's more common around where we are in the Midwest, is, is types of plants that use wind to transport that pollen. And this is actually why we think of pollen season as being such a problem, because a lot of the plants that use wind, they're called anemophilous types of pollen spreading mechanisms, they produce a lot of it so that pollen can get to its intended target. And so this is when we think of in the springtime, you might walk out to your car and you have a coating of pollen on the surface. That's Mm. those anemophilous species. And so a lot of people are allergic to that pollen because it's floating around in the air and the plants are sort of expecting that the wind is going to carry it to fertilize these other plants. And unfortunately, we tend to come into contact with it along its way. Well, what you explained about thunderstorm asthma makes a lot of sense. But So explain to me, when they looked at the data in the United States, they found a similar spike in people complaining of severe allergies or severe asthma attacks. But in the United States, the spikes came right before a thunderstorm. What was that mechanism? Yeah, so usually we have like different types of seasons where different types of plants or trees or grasses or weeds might be emitting pollen. So usually what will happen, and you might be, if you're allergic to pollen, you might be allergic to one type of pollen or you might be allergic to lots of different kinds. Um, So usually what we see here in the Midwest is we'll see a lot of the deciduous trees start to produce pollen in the springtime. Um, That might be things like birch or oak. A lot of people are allergic to those types of pollen. Um, Then we often might see different kinds of evergreen come out. So you might see the pine trees come out next. And then over the summer, we're, the, the grasses emit a lot of pollen. And as we move into the fall, which is what we're kind of wrapping up right now, a lot of the weeds are emitting, are flowering and emitting pollen. So the plants are emitting these tiny, tiny pollen grains, um, you know, from the, from the aspect, like, you know, they're very, they're very small to the naked eye. Um, and they're on the order of maybe about 10 to 50 micrometers. Some of them can be a little bit larger as well. And so when we emit those, like when the plants emit those types of pollen grains, you know, usually as a human, when we come into contact with them, they might, um, you might, your eyes might come into contact. That can cause the, aller- the allergy watering eyes syndrome. Um, they might get stuck in your nasal cavity. That can start your nose running. But a lot of times your upper respiratory defenses will catch those larger particles. And so then you just might have symptoms like a runny nose or watery eyes. The difference with the thunderstorm allergy is those, once the, the pollen grains can break apart, then they make these tinier particles that can get past your upper respiratory defenses and down into your lungs. And that's actually what starts to trigger the sort of breathing types of respiratory distress. I see. When you said a lot of these pollens are 10 to 50 micrometers, I mean, is that 
for those of us who are lay people, is that like the width of a hair or can you give yeah, me some? Around, yeah, that's, I'd say, yeah, so that's about right. I mean, I would say like, you know, you can usually think about that as being a human hair or a little bit smaller. Um, and those are like what we call coarse particles in the atmosphere. And there's lots of other types of particles that are in there as well. Um, you know, a lot of air quality pollutants also have tiny particles that can get into your lungs. Um, and those tiny particles, again, a lot of times for the health, we use a, a cutoff of around two and a half microns, which is much, much smaller than a human hair. Those are the ones that can make it down into your lungs and trigger um, asthma and other respiratory problems. Hmm. And tell me what influence a, a warming planet has on these problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a couple different factors. Um, one of the most ones that we think is the most important right now is temperature. So as the planet's warming due to greenhouse gas warming, we're seeing kind of shifts in some of these seasons. And you can think about this even anecdotally about what we've seen where we've had a pretty warm fall here within the Midwest. Um, so that can have a couple different influences. One is it can make um, springtime flowering come a little bit sooner. Um, it can also make those flowering seasons extend a little bit longer. And as we move into the fall, we have ragweed season. It actually pushes the flowering of ragweed later, whereas we might have seen ragweed flowering in September. Now it might be more like in October around here. Um, so temperature is one big factor. Another one is precipitation. Um, so, again, having a wet or a dry spring can influence how much pollen plants will produce. And then finally, another factor we've been looking at is the atmospheric concentrations of carbon dioxide. Um, so carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas in the atmosphere, and that drives a lot of the warming we're seeing in global atmospheric temperatures. But more CO2 can often influence plants and in how they produce vegetation and biomass as well as pollen. So one of the thoughts is that as carbon dioxide increases, plants might tend to be a little bit more, um, take up more carbon dioxide, be more productive in this higher CO2 environment. And there's some connections where we think that actually means that they might start to produce more pollen based on these higher CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere. One of the things that I'm always hearing is, well, you know, with the warmer temperatures and global warming, um, we don't have the same kind of freeze conditions that in the winter used to uh, kill off a lot of this stuff and and make make the amounts more manageable when what survived finally regrew in the spring. How long? How cold does it have to be, and for how long to uh, to undo some of this? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, because every type of every different type of tree or plant is going to be is going to respond a little bit differently. Um, and so, you know, in terms of the freeze dates, usually plants are using that to sort of decide when they're going to put out their flowers and then when they're going to put out the leaves. Um, so usually there might be, I mean, we try to put this into models in some way to try to predict when that might happen. And it's a little bit tricky, right? Some might wait until like two or three freezes and then they'll wait for a certain amount of time. And I make it sound like the plant's actually making this decision <laughs> like a human being, but obviously that's not exactly the case. Um, but, you know, so the freeze dates might mean that they decide to put out the plants or make the decision to put out the plants, uh, like to put out leaves and flowers a little bit earlier. Um, in the fall, it influences the weed production because, again, it could be pushing it a little bit later. And then also with something like, especially as we move into the fall season with ragweed, as we have more of these freezes, they're eventually going to kill off those weeds. So the fall effects of the freeze are a little bit different than the spring effects, if that makes sense. Yeah. That absolutely makes sense. Um, 
We need to, uh, Dr. Steiner, we need to take a break. I'm talking to Dr. Allison Steiner, who's a professor of climate and space sciences at the University of Michigan. We're going to talk more about climate change when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Well, if the subject of climate change or climate crisis comes up at your Thanksgiving uh, table and you have relatives who say, oh, don't have to worry about that. That's, you know, decades away, maybe even more, maybe like a 100 years away. No, actually, we are starting to feel the fallout right here, right now. There's been... New data, at least new for lay people, probably not new for scientists, that's been reported that if you know somebody who has really bad allergies or really bad asthma, warn them that they now should pay a little bit more attention to the weather report, particularly if a thunderstorm is predicted, because sometimes right before a thunderstorm and or right after a thunderstorm, there can be this massive pollen trigger and even worse the pollen is broken up into these tiny little bits that really get deep into your lungs so uh is it too late dr steiner um i'm talking to allison steiner professor of climate and space sciences at the university of michigan i mean this is already happening so it's too late right No, it's definitely not too late. And one thing we can see is, you know, when we've tried to project out into the future how pollen will change, you know, out to what climate scientists often call it, you know, the end of century or 2100. And that's usually like our long view of climate. And the pathways look very different depending upon what happens with emissions. So even while we've seen the historical changes, we can definitely slow that increasing trajectory um, if we can curb greenhouse gas emissions. Interesting. And, you know, for those of you who are thinking, well, I don't really, I just have a little bit of a problem with allergies. There was, in when I was looking through some of the background on this, there is some evidence that even though you, this might not be a phenomenon that sends you to the hospital, it could make you more, more vulnerable to other viruses. Could you explain that? Yeah, that research is still very conflicting at this point in time. Um, there are some studies that are showing association between, you know, if you if you are someone who suffers from allergic um, symptoms, how susceptible you are to other respiratory viruses. Um, I'm not a medical doctor myself, and so I really can't speak too much, but I do look at that literature, and I would say the studies are still conflicting. You know, we really are trying to understand um, how allergies might set you up for other types of respiratory problems. But I would say at this point, it's still a very um, uncertain link. Interesting. And tell me, does this have a greater effect on young children? And is it true what I've been reading on and off over the years that part of the reason why kids seem to be having more allergies is because we made our lives and our houses too clean? Yeah, that is one of the current theories. Again, I'm not a medical doctor and I'm not an allergy specialist. I mostly study the pollen in the air. Um, but it is true that, you know, as we're seeing 
the concentrations of pollen increase in the atmosphere, that means that you're going to be exposed more. And so, especially for young children, as they're being exposed more and more, there is this possibility that more people might start to develop these allergies. I think many people are familiar with the fact that, um, you know, you can, you can develop allergies, especially to pollen at any point in time of your life. And I'm sure you've heard many anecdotal stories or many of your listeners will have this experience where, you know, they never have allergies until they move to City X. And then all of a sudden they're exposed to a different allergen and they develop a sensitivity to it. Um, so, you know, unfortunately we don't want to, you know, trees are a part of our lives. Um, this is something, you know, we don't want to say don't go outside. However, it is something to be aware of if you start to develop sensitivities and understanding when pollen might be high that can help you manage your symptoms. How is pollen different than molds? I mean, I've heard people say, you know, uh, I'm allergic to tree mold. Is that a, is that, mm-hmm. what is that? Is that a kind of a pollen? Well, molds are not, so molds are not actually pollen grains. Um, it's, it's, molds are produced by fungal spores. And again, it's another particle that they're using for reproduction. The spores are actually the reproductive component of the fungi. Um, and so they can be dispersed into the atmosphere in the same way that pollen is. Um, in some, so in some locations across the United States where people are counting pollen and tracking it, they're also tracking molds because many people have a mold allergy as well. Can they be broken down into itty-bitty pieces and get deep in your lungs too? Yeah, that's another thing that they found. In general, mold spores are much smaller. You know, I would say, you know, they tend to be around the order of 1 to 10 microns. So they're, they're smaller than pollen grains. But both have shown evidence in the laboratory that they can rupture into these or fragment into these smaller particles that can get deep in your lungs. Good grief. Um, <laughs> I did not have seasonal allergies until I turned 40. I have always mm-hmm. lived in the same part of the country, so... Um, I thought this was a particularly hideous aspect of getting older. <laughs> and I have to tell you, is, it, um, is this one of the times of the year, you know, you've said you've talked about the fall. Is this one of the times of the year where people have to be especially careful right now? Um, well, we're kind of closing out, I would say, once we've had, we've had a couple freezes here in Michigan. Um, so a lot of the, the flowering is going to be concluded at this point. So generally the fall allergies, people are allergic to things like ragweed or other types of weeds. They tend to flower um, towards the end of the summer and into the fall. So, you know, what types of plants an individual is sensitive to really depends upon the person. Um, and again, you can develop sensitivities to plants to different types of plants over the course of your lifetime. So if you notice that you're starting to develop allergic symptoms, again, that like watering eyes, the runny nose in the fall, it probably means that you're allergic to things like ragweeds or weeds. If you notice it predominantly in the spring, um, then it's probably some different types of trees. You talked at the beginning of this interview about thunderstorm asthma, but we didn't call it just rainfall asthma. So is it the is it the um, high winds? Is it the barometric pressure? What makes the thunderstorm so special? Yeah, this is something we're still trying to understand as well. When we try to study it in the laboratory, we can rupture of those particles under a lot of different moist conditions. Even something like a high relative humidity in the atmosphere can cause rupture. So the question is, what, what is special about the thunderstorms? Um, and that's something we've been trying to use computer models to understand. Um, you know, one theory is that the high updrafts, you know, when sort of winds are sort of sucked up into the thunderstorm, the idea is that the pollen can be sucked up and ruptured in the cloud and then recirculated with those sort of strong 
downward moving um, parcels of air that come off a thunderstorm. Um, so it might be something about the high winds um, that trigger it. Other people have postulated that it's lightning, that actually the os- really? sort of osmotic shock, yeah, that lightning can trigger it. Um, you know, personally, I kind of think it, it ha- I think it has something more to do with the moisture that drives the rupture than the lightning, although the lightning could certainly probably rupture a pollen grain as well. But this is something we're still trying to understand. We don't have very good field data about this, and so we try to use computer models to understand when and where it would happen. You used the phrase osmotic shock. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. It means you're kind of really triggering the pressure within the cell of the, that pollen grain, and so the lightning sort of causes this sort of big jolt, I mean literally a jolt, that'll, that'll cause the membranes in the pollen grain to rupture. Dr. Steiner, do you have allergies? You know, I don't. Um, I don't have seasonal allergies, although my children do. And so I've sort of observed these effects in my own kids. So your guess would be that the um, predisposition to suffer from uh, allergy attacks, it's not genetic? You know, I can't really speak to what drives allergies. I think that is something that is really um, still very uncertain. Um, but, you know, we so- know certainly that natural surroundings can cause that. And so I can at least speak in my case, but, you know, I don't have allergies, so I didn't pass them on to my children, although maybe my husband did. <laughs> in the Wall Street Journal article where I was reading about the horrible incidents of uh, asthma after they had a big thunderstorm, um, they said in that article that, at least in Australia, the medical experts were sort of sounding an alarm that if you were somebody who is susceptible to severe allergy attacks or that has bad asthma, that when a thunderstorm is in the offing, that it would be wise to stay inside. Is that an overreaction? Um, well, I think in Melbourne, they were very specifically concerned about the, you know, the really large event that they had. Um, you know, when people have observed it in other events, it hasn't been quite as acute. And, and as you mentioned, the, the article, the study that was published in the Wall Street Journal sort of suggested that we, they didn't see that with other data. There have been a few cases reported around the United States, but it's not as, it doesn't seem to be quite as big of a problem here as it might have been where they had it in Australia with a very large grass season. So I think they're just taking a very preventative approach and they're trying to do better forecasting about when these types of events may happen. So, um, you know, again, just preventing human suffering and also loss of life in that case. I read about climate change all the time and the accumulation of CO2. And, you know, I read about what the methane that comes out of cows and, and how if we all just went to a vegetarian diet, it would be so much better if we didn't fly on so many commercial aircraft. Life would be so much better. In your, in your life, what do you do to try to minimize or reduce the production of carbon dioxide? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's kind of two aspects to it. One is you know so how we how we take on personal responsibility, and in terms of my own personal life, I do try to consolidate or you know consolidate air, airline travel as much as I can um, and try to minimize it when possible. Although obviously in today's world that can be really challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing, also trying to minimize driving. Um, and, you know, riding bikes whenever I can. Although, you know, really it depends on the time of year. You know, you live in a cold climate as well. And so sometimes that's, that's not always reasonable. 
And so I think it also comes back to, you know, there are larger responsibilities from corporations in terms of how we deal with fossil fuel companies and what kinds of, um, you know, what kinds of approaches we can have on the larger level, not just on the individual level. So I think it's really going to be a combination of these types of factors as we move to, especially as we move towards the clean, hopefully moving more towards the clean energy economy. We've all talked about how it seems like um, all the places where we like to live, they're they're getting warmer. I know I have family members who go to Arizona, and uh, the summers in Arizona are much worse than they were 15 years ago. Here in the Chicago area, I mean, who knows if that's a trend, but I remember last January, I think we had one or two days in the 70s, not that it didn't get cold, is it a question of there's less time getting cold or is it shifting? Like you said, things that used to happen in September now are happening in November. We had some warm days in January, but we still had plenty of cold weather in March and April. Is, 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 the, is the calendar for weather just shifting? I mean, I think we get, we are seeing an increase in baseline temperatures across the board, you know, in, term, in terms of certain seasons. Um, you know, I think in the Midwest, we're in a particularly interesting climatological region. You know, we're still going to have cold winters. You know, Chicago is still going to have its cold winter. Michigan's still going to have its snow. Um, but what we're probably going to see is also, in addition to some of that moving of the baseline, we're also going to see changes in the extreme events, especially extreme heat events. You know, if we're talking about health impacts and allergies, Extreme heat effects on health are also going to be really substantial, and that's something we have to keep an eye on as well. Um, What do you do to keep your children safe, and what should my listeners do to keep their children or grandchildren safe? You know, personally, from the perspective of pollen, I found it helpful to understand what it is they are allergic to. So if it's possible to get allergen testing and understand what your triggers are, I found that's really helpful in managing my children's symptoms. And then once you know really what they are allergic to, and and like I said, sometimes you can guess based on the time of year. um, But, you know, if you talk with your doctor or allergist, they can kind of help come up with some general categories. Then you know when you need to start taking your medication, when you might want to limit time outside, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Is this going to get worse before it gets better? <laughs> I mean, the trajectory we're on right now, we're sort of on a, I feel like I sometimes call it like a slow burn. Um, and what really happens is what's going to happen in the next, you know, where we really see the temperatures diverging is in the second half of this century. So basically from 2050 to 2100. And that's where the choices we make now are going to make a big difference then in, in terms of what we do about emissions. And so I do think I'm very much optimistic that things can get better um, as we've had awareness and understanding of how these events are impacting people's lives. We've definitely seen more action. Um, and so I am optimistic that we'll see some changes in the next several decades. Several decades? I thought you were going to say in the next couple of years. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think we're going to have to make some emissions changes in the next few years. But we're going to see the climate effects, um, you know, take their time to, to start to sort of slow down and resolve. All right. Well, I will try to stay alive that long to see the light <laughs> at the end of this tunnel. Uh, yeah, you, you and me both. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Dr. Allison Steiner, professor of climate and space sciences at the University of Michigan. She has uh, co-authored a lot of studies on the effects of warming on airborne pollens, a problem that uh, seems to be getting worse right now. Um, Hopefully that will change in the next few decades. Allison, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. 
We are going to take a break for news and we're going to get back to politics right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. I'm joined by Professor William Muck, who is uh, chair of the Department of Political Science and coordinator for uh, North Central College in Naperville's Global Studies and Model United Nations programs. Uh, tell me, uh, William, in the Model United Nations programs, do you teach everybody how to yell at everybody else and how not to listen and how to take votes that means that end up meaning nothing happens? Well, no. Well, that, sometimes that happens. But, <laughs> you know, the whole point of, of teaching the United Nations is to learn diplomacy uh, and, and also to learn how difficult it is to engage in diplomacy. Uh, you know, the United Nations, I think, does a lot of really good work. But the way that it is structured uh, makes it difficult to be always effective, right? So and I think so part of when you teach a class like that, it's to expose the students the challenge of doing anything at the international level and the frustrating side of all that but well all that has to, all that happens you still have to be diplomatic you still have to be nice and you have to use diplomatic language so that's part of what we we're we're trying to teach the students is to sort of mimic the real world and see how difficult it is really to to solve problems and to to pass meaningful legislation and sometimes yes to see laws passed that are that are not particularly good right i mean the, the united nations is also open to mistakes as well Interesting that you say uh, compromise and the difficulty of negotiation. I um, usually keep one monitor on CNN while I'm on the air just in case there's some major breaking news. And I keep seeing these banners on negotiations to free more hostages or all the hostages close. They're close. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, what does that mean? Like, okay, well, we're going to do it, but we can't decide if we should do it Wednesday or if we should do it Thursday. You know, there's arguments on both sides. I mean, clearly there must be a great degree of progress for anybody in a position of knowing to say, oh my gosh, this, this is, uh, this is imminent. And yet it's clearly not, not done. Uh, you've probably been privy to these kinds of negotiations. What is somebody like me supposed to take from that? Oh, it's almost happened. Yeah, but it hasn't happened. So that means maybe it might not happen. But, you know, we don't really know what's at stake here. It's maddening to be on the outside and to get little <laughs> snippets of news, but not really know what's going on, right? This is where you want to be on the fly on the wall and to actually hear some of the conversations that are taking place so you can know, you know, what's, who's asking for what and all of that. We don't know that. Now, the one sort of funny thing is like Biden keeps slipping, right? He's, he's not supposed to release things, but he keeps saying things like, Hey, I'm feeling really good about that. And I'm sure his team is thinking like, Joe, you know, shush, don't, don't say anything until we're more further down the road because you're absolutely right. It, it's slow. It's monotonous. Um, I think back to the, you know, Jimmy Carter and the Iran hostage, all how that, you know, day after day, you know, with no progress. And I think, I think this is likely to play out more quickly. Uh, but it's, it's a really difficult process to play out just because you can't see what's really happening. You know, what is Israel? What are the United States asking for? What is Hamas doing? Like, what do they want in return? It's, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of like making sausage. It's not really good to watch it as it's taking place, right? But eventually you get more news on the outside. So 
in a negotiation like this, I mean, I was kind of being silly about whether, you know, oh, let's debate whether it's going to take place Wednesday or Thursday. But what do you think what do you think is being talked about? Like, will there be a ceasefire? How long will the ceasefire go on? How many hostages do we get for, you know, every minute of the ceasefire? I mean, is it is it that detailed? I would think so. Yes. And and I think what I would love to know is what is Hamas asking for? Right. I, because if we go back to our initial conversation, you know, Hamas is trying to create a narrative. They're trying to tell a story that is favorable to them. So right now, what they want to do or I'm, I'm guessing what they want to do is they want to portray themselves as the good guys. Right. So they're the ones releasing the hostages, even though it's completely illegal to take hostages. Right. I mean, so that's we're sort of stepping past that point. But they want to trade themselves as good. So they want to slowly release these hostages. So it feels like, again, they're the ones that are compromising. So I would be curious, what are they asking for? I think here's an issue where the United States and Israel probably don't see eye to eye on this process. Uh, Biden has suggested that his number one priority is getting the hostages out. And Israel has said that, but I think their real priority is going after Hamas, right? And so you've got slightly different interests and motivations here. So you've got, you know, at least two or three actors, all with slightly different requests. And again, that's why it takes so long. And my guess is behind the scenes, they felt like they made a lot of progress. And then in those final stages, something comes up. And then they've got to spend a disproportionate amount of time on what seems like a really small detail to get finally over the hump. So that's, you know, it's just, it's sort of maddening to, to, to watch and to be a part of and then not know what's really happening. Have you ever been a part of... Um Tense negotiations? I haven't. No, in academics, I'm I'm removed from all that stuff, Joan, because I couldn't handle it. It'd be too stressful. <laughs> I got to be in the ivory tower where I could read about this years afterwards. But I will say, like, you know, I oftentimes read about this stuff. So part of the, the scholarship I do is going back and looking at diplomacy. And, you know, we mentioned World War One. What I love to do is look at the, you know, the telegram sent back and forth. Or another case study I do is the Cuban Missile Crisis. So we, you know, I love to go through and read, you know, what were Kennedy and Khrushchev saying to each other? What were, what was going on inside the administration? Who was stressed out over what? You know, so that's how, that's how I like to understand those events and see the inside uh, process. And a lot of times what what's revealed is the stress, the anxiety, um, sometimes good decision making, but sometimes bad decision making. Um, so, you know, that's that's all of what's happening here is, you know, you've got different actors all trying to pursue their strategic ends, but oftentimes coming at it very, very differently. In the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, the then Soviet Union wanted to install missiles, ballistic missiles in Cuba, missiles that were capable of launching a nuclear attack on the United States. And we drew the line and said, no, and no, we're not going to we're not going to live this way. And that was another time. I mean, I was pretty young, but I remember the feeling filtering down to me as a kid that people were very worried that this was, here we go, it's going to be another world war. Was there something someone did that you can point to that averted that crisis? Why did Khrushchev end up backing down? 
This is such a guy, Joe. We're doing such fun stuff today. Cuban Missile Crisis, <laughs> World War One. This is the kind of stuff I love to talk about. Here's what I would say: the big lesson that I think people oftentimes miss about the Cuban Missile Crisis, what allowed that to be resolved peacefully, was negotiation. So the the common narrative is that, as as you said, Kennedy got tough with Khrushchev. But what most people don't know is that what really sealed the deal was the United States agreed to remove missiles from Turkey secretly. So we said to the Soviet Union, hey, in six months, we're going to remove these same missiles that you have in Cuba. We'll remove ours from Turkey and everybody's going to feel better. And when now Kennedy said, you can't tell anybody because it'll look bad for me domestically. Uh, And Khrushchev said, "Okay, right. So I think the reason that we didn't have nuclear war in the Cuban Missile Crisis is because Kennedy and Khrushchev were able to sit down and have a conversation and negotiate, right? So it's, it's, I think about that with the United States and China right now. Like the best thing you could oftentimes do to de-escalate is have some conversation, find common ground, right? And so I think we avoided nuclear war because these two leaders were able to say, hey, let's find a common solution. Now, we can't always tell everybody because domestic politics is really, really difficult to overcome. But that, I think, is the is the one reason that we were able to avoid nuclear war was was compromise. But, you know, it's, it's a very different story than we often read about with the Cuban Missile Crisis. So you think it's possible that in Joe Biden's recent talks with Chinese Premier Xi, that there were some quid pro quos? I think so. Now, I think it's at a really low level, right? So there, but I think both of them are saying things have gotten awfully heated over the last six months to a year. Let's find a way to de-escalate. Let's find at least a couple things that we can agree on. And one of the things that Joe Biden talked about is that we don't want to make a silly mistake. You know, we don't want to misinterpret some action on your part. So one of the things they agreed to was that they were going to have the militaries talking to each other. I think this is such an important thing because it's so easy. Uh, to have some mistake where if the militaries aren't communicating with each other, what's going on here? What did you do there? Why did you do that? Misinterpret that and suddenly it spirals into something bigger. So I applaud both President Xi and Joe Biden for saying, hey, let's Let's sit down. Let's look to each other face to face and let's talk about putting, you know, some ground floor in there so we can maybe build up in the future. So it didn't get a ton of news, but I think it was a really important meeting between the two of them to say, let's create a framework for maybe in the future we can have some more of these conversations. So I guess I just already assumed that um, we have um, Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense, I assumed that he already had the private cell phone number of the person in China and the person in Russia who is his equivalent and that 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 was I just assumed that that would be, you know, um, a way that we had off like what you were just talking about, these misunderstandings that can really lead to horrific situations. And with China, we didn't have that before. Lloyd Austin didn't have anybody's phone number. For a lot of years, we did. But then in 2022, Nancy Pelosi, you probably remember, remember Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan. Yes. Uh, and when she did that, 
that upset the Chinese military, Chinese government, the military, and so they cut off conversations. Um, and so since that visit, there have been no direct communications between the U.S. and Chinese military. Uh, and so that's why, again, it, this seems like a basic, you know, thing you should have, but it wasn't existing. And there have been a number of incidents in the South China Sea. Not long ago, there was a Chinese jet that got within 10 feet of a U.S. plane, uh, right? And so let's find a way to start communicating, you know, baby steps here uh, so that you can avoid some miscalculation or misinterpretation of events. So again, it, we're really, it's, it's, it's baby steps, but I think it was an important first step uh, to maybe create more dialogue between these two really, really powerful actors. You know, I know there was talk um, that some in government were trying to pressure Nancy Pelosi into not going to Taiwan. But the way I understood it, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Taiwan is part of an Asian group that the United States is a part of. And she went not because she wanted to thumb her nose at China and say, I'm just reminding you that we like Taiwan. She was visiting all of the different countries in this uh, organization and to skip Taiwan, uh, she later said, would have sent the wrong message because there it was her job to visit all these folks. Taiwan's a member of the club. So Taiwan needed to be on the list. And that's all there was to it. Do I have that even remotely right? No, that's right. That's how she portrayed it. And I think that's absolutely right. But I also think the second thing you mentioned was also a part of that. She's been visiting Taiwan for years. And I think she probably, as a, as a member of government, wanted to also send some sign of support, right? So I think she was doing both things. I, you know, I think she really believes in, in, uh, you know, the autonomy of Taiwan. And so I think she saw both things occurring, but it was, it was interpreted very differently from China. They saw this as provocative that the United States is messing around in its backyard and, and maybe a little bit that is the right interpretation but again so these are these little incidents that become a big deal uh, Joe Biden this last week called uh, President Xi a dictator and it's the second time he did that the first time he did it you know China, China I'm sorry China got so upset right so these are all the little things that make diplomacy so difficult right you you probably saw the video of, of Blinken when when uh, Joe On Biden Saturday said Night the word Live. dictator yeah. Oh, it was it was fantastic, right? Because Joe Biden is just that kind of guy. He says things, but Anthony Blink Anthony Blinken's thinking like, I spent hours, you know, making all of this progress and gone, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah. When um when uh President Biden was asked by a reporter, you know, you said they were a dictatorship before, do you know, do you still stand behind that? And he was like, Well, yeah, they are and Anthony Blinken just <laughs> scrunches his eyes and his eyebrow and his head droops ever so slightly and you could just really feel for the guy. Anyway, oh, we're definitely. past time to take a break. So um hold that thought. Um I'll be back with Professor William Muck right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Professor William Muck, who is the chair of the political science department at North Central College in Naperville. And we have been talking about China most recently, but we were also talking about the situation with Israel and Hamas. And, uh, William, I was looking at our text line during the break, and Andy from Evanston texted in a possible solution rather than going in guns blazing. What would happen if the United Nations or Israel or even the United States were to 
offer bounties, like did offer to pay Palestinians to turn over Hamas fighters. Would a situation like that work? You know, it would be difficult to do because Hamas has been so part of the Palestinian population, right? So it, because it's, there's also power dynamics, right? Hamas is the, is the group that has the weapons. They've got the control. They've got the power. So the average Palestinian doesn't have a whole lot they can do to go after Hamas. So there's that sort of power discrepancy. And, you know, from, there's not a lot of polling, but it does seem like a lot of the Palestinians aren't particularly happy with Hamas, right? So that's, that's well, why that's I was thinking. That's what I was going to import- ask you too. Because I've read reports that say, oh, the Palestinians hate Hamas. And then I've read other people saying, you know what? That's not true because they wouldn't hide them. They wouldn't support them. They wouldn't vote them into office if they weren't supportive of Hamas. And I I don't I don't know, maybe depending upon which population you're looking at, maybe both are true. Well, that, that's exactly right. It's entirely possible that there are some who are sympathetic and there are others who are not. Um, and then, you know, as this, again, what Hamas wants is as the Israel camp, uh, Israel's attack on Hamas plays out, they're hoping to turn supporters into sympathizers, sympathizers into supporters, right? As, you know, to, to make more Palestinians and, and actually others in the region to come to their cause. So that's why it's so difficult. The job that Israel's trying to do is so difficult and Hamas is intending to make it difficult at every turn. I mean, it's just, it's a really a no-win situation for Israel because no matter what they do, they're going to be portrayed as the bad guy. It's an incredibly difficult to fight a terrorist organization. Sometimes I think it's uh, also unfair because I, I read a lot of articles, I read a lot of comments, and everybody seems to think that uh, Joe Biden has the power to end this conflict. And I know the United States is powerful and has a lot of influence, but sometimes that seems unfair to me. Like, well, you know, supposedly the United States gave Zelensky at least a few days heads up when when we knew that Russia was going to invade. So why didn't Joe Biden pick up the phone to Vladimir Putin and say, you know, we'll take those missiles out of Turkey again, you know, or whatever it takes? Um, does it seem to you that I know that he's doing a lot and he's doing a lot behind the scenes, but sometimes I think people expect Joe Biden to be able to tell other countries what to do and how to live their lives. I don't know. That's realistic. No, I think it's it's not, not it's not at all realistic, right? And this is something we've seen throughout. I mean, we could go all the way to post World War II U.S. foreign policy. We always assume that the United States, because we're so powerful, can shape the world and shape the activities of states. And sometimes we can, but not always. Uh, these other actors also have their own interests, and they don't always want to listen to the United States. So you know, you can put your thumb on the scale and you can try to influence, but there's a lot of the world that just plays out. No matter, it just plays out the way that. It it's going to, and the United States can't always control those world events. It's frustrating, but I think presidents historically have been criticized for not being able to control world events when it's it's not reasonable to expect the United States to, to be able to do that. What do you think would be going on right now if Donald Trump were president? 
Well, I think so if we take the two conflicts we've been talking about, Gaza and Ukraine, I think if we start with Ukraine, I think the United States probably he would have done just about everything he could to cut funding um, and it would have played right into the hands of Vladimir Putin. So I think that would have been really, really dangerous. Um, I don't know what Trump would have done uh, in regards to Israel because it's so hard to know. He doesn't have a coherent foreign policy. So it's entirely possible that he would have backed. Hamas. I'm sorry, not back to Israel in their battle with Hamas. But I can't say for that for sure because he just is so erratic in terms of what his views yeah, are, liked, and they can change. He liked Netanyahu for a while, and then and then when Netanyahu started talking to Biden, apparently that was a betrayal. Yeah. Right. And, and he, you know, I think he likes to talk tough on a lot of things. So I think he may have, you know, talked tough about, uh, you know, hard lying on Hamas, but it's hard to know for sure. I think certainly for Ukraine, there would have been a, a number of efforts to try to cut U.S. support there and do everything he can to, to limit that. Uh, and that I think would have been very, very dangerous. And he's still saying the same things. I mean, he has said regarding NATO, if he gets elected again, that not only is he going to pull us out of NATO, but he's, as much as said, he's going to do everything in his pos- in his power to to destroy NATO. I mean, I think we. Um, I don't understand how there is such popularity for this guy. I know he has a hardcore cult following. I get that. You know, they are. They know. I mean. Jim Jones told everybody to drink the Kool-Aid and they drank the Kool-Aid. And I think that there's a there's a contingent of Trump supporters like that. But I can't believe that's a majority of the country. I can't believe that's more than 20, at most 30 percent. And the rest of the people who at least give lip service to Trump seem to me to be really un-American. It's such a strange position. His views on NATO have never made sense to me because, you know, Democrat and Republican, everybody really thinks that NATO has been a success. It's a wonderful alliance that the United States created. Um, it basically reflects the interests of the United States. Um, it's a wonderful connection with some of the European allies. I mean, it has proven to be a really durable and successful alliance for many decades. Uh, and Republicans felt that way for years and Democrats have for years. So it's, it's bizarre that Trump can decide that he doesn't like NATO and then he can pull a big chunk of the Republican Party with me or with him. It, it Again, it has, a, it has a cult dynamic to it that is separate from the real interests of the United States. Um, I, yeah, it's, it's a bizarre thing. And I spent a lot of time, Joan, thinking like, how, how can how can people get on board with this? Because it's just not sound foreign policy, again, on a whole host of issues. Amazing, amazingly so. Um, I think we should create a new segment. Uh, Joan and William talk about history. <laughs> love it. I love it, Joan. It's my face. But, you know, politics and history and and drawing comparisons to what's going on in the world today. It's it's my happy place. <laughs> it is. It is my happy place, too, because I think, too, it's so important to learn the lessons of history and not repeat them. But if we don't learn what happened and why it happened and when it happened and how it happened, then we're we're going to stumble into those same mistakes. I think it's so important. So we're going to, from going forward, every time you're on, we are going to have a history segment. Um, Cuban Missile Crisis, World War One, what you know, whatever is was going on at any any given time. Okay. 
This sounds fantastic, Joan. I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, thank you. Professor William Muck, North Central College in Naperville, also co-host of the podcast Politics Lab. We are going to uh, take a break, and we are going to be back with our favorite lawyer, Tony Murray, right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I would like to invite you to call in 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT. We are launching a newly sponsored segment, Ask an Attorney, with our good friend Tony Murray, who you have heard here on WCPT for quite a while now. Tony, welcome to our new Ask an Attorney segment. Joan, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's a a real pleasure to... Yeah, I listen to your ads all the time, but I don't know much about you as a person. Tell me about your background and what drew you to a state law. I'd be happy to. Um, I grew up in the north suburbs of Chicago, where, where I where I live still. My wife and I live here. We raised our three children here. I have three uh, grown adult children, and um, I went to Marquette University in Milwaukee, uh, both as an undergrad and to law school. Uh, graduating from law school, I returned to Chicago. My wife and I lived in the city for a number of years. I worked for a couple of other firms and decided that I wanted to open my own shop. I was an early entrepreneur, I guess you could say. Yeah. And, um, opened my office in, in Mundelein, actually, in Libertyville area in 1987. So I have been at this for a while, and I truly enjoy it. What drew you to this part of the law? It's a really good question, Joan. Um, as a young attorney, you tend to do a number of different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a history major in college, so did not have a you know did not have a financial investment background. I actually took the classwork at Roosevelt University downtown uh, to be a certified financial planner. I didn't want to be a planner as a profession, but because I did not have a financial background. I had decided I wanted to go into estate planning as a focus of my practice. So that CFP training helped me to to talk to bankers, investment uh, uh, counselors for people, so I could work in this area more easily. And um, estate planning is a field of the law that is, I would say, people often think of it as being mysterious. What is estate planning, right? A mm-hmm. lot of times it's confused with financial planning, for example. And they're two totally different things. Uh, well, yeah, financial that's, planning. That's some of what I wanted to ask you about. I know that you sure. do um, estate planning. I know that you do trusts. I know that you do wills. And I know I, I sent you this in an email. I don't know if this is an, an, a myth, an urban legend. But, you know, I've always heard people say, oh, you know, if you die and you don't have a will, that the, the state is going to uh, your your heirs are not going to get uh, your uh, your estate. Rather, the the state will take it. Is that true? Uh, it, it is almost never true. Okay. Oh. Um, the the only case where it might be true that assets would not go to somebody's family is let's just take a brief example. Uh, Joe Smith passes away. He's not married. Doesn't have children. 
um, and he doesn't have a written will, and the state will make every effort to find out who are his family, maybe nieces, nephews, maybe brothers, sisters, uh, but they'll do that search to find out who those people are. But that's one of the complications, or I guess dangers, if you will, of not having a written estate plan is that if you don't have it in writing, nobody knows where things should go if indeed you don't have a large family, for example. Um, the state uh, does not take, quote-unquote, really anything unless there is just nobody present and nobody accountable that's, a, that's a, a relative or a family member as defined by the Illinois statutes. So I would put it under urban myth more than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I would imagine that that process uh, is certainly streamlined if indeed you have a will. And as an attorney, you keep a copy. Uh, if somebody does a will with you, you keep a copy of it, too, because I know people are famous for, oh, my gosh, you know, like, where's my birth certificate? Where's this piece of paper? Um, people mm-hmm. aren't always uh, as careful about maintaining records. So if I do a, a will with you and then I lose it, will you still have it? That's that's a it's a really really good question, Joan. And the answer is is most probably no. Okay, and I'll explain why. Um, Let's say a forty year old couple calls me; they want to do an estate plan, and uh, I I draft a trust for them, for themselves, their family, their children. Um, If they wish me to keep a copy of the document in my file for reference, in other words. 10 years down the line, they want to redo that estate plan because things change in life. Sometimes, you know, documents need to be amended, which is not hard to do, and it's, it's fine. But each individual that has an estate plan done for them needs to be responsible for keeping the documents in a safe place. Now, what's safe? Safe for one person is, is not the same as it is for another. Safety deposit boxes are fine. Um, uh, a, a good fireproof uh, file cabinet at home is a good place to keep it. But the issue with an attorney keeping documents, whether an attorney is 30 years old or 60 years old, life happens, and we don't know oh. how long that attorney will be around. Um, and even if that attorney lives a good long life, uh, attorneys often leave the practice of law to do other things. Uh, going to law school and getting a legal education prepares people to do a lot of different things. They may work for a bank. They may end up working for an investment firm. They could do all sorts of things. So to count on that attorney to always be there at that I moment see. in time in the future, it is, is, it, it's, it's problematic, and it's probably just not really all that practical. Yeah. Does I actually sense? went out and bought a, a while back, I went out and bought a fire safe. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I keep everybody's passports in there. I, I keep all of the various birth certificates and Social Security information and all of that. But, you know, those things are kind of expensive, Tony. They are expensive. They are expensive. Um, I think one, um, one method that most people could use is to keep their original documents in, in a good place, whether it's a fireproof safe or whether it's just a file cabinet at home. But they could also turn to a, a trusted family member, 
maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's an adult child, maybe it's somebody else, and they could deposit with that person a copy of the original document, okay? Now, having the original is always a good idea, but in the worst-case scenario where somebody's kept an original, that person passes away. That original document can't be found. The person with the copy could always petition the court to have the copy certified by the court as basically an original document. Oh, I see. So there, so there, so, so there are steps that can be taken to make sure that the document that you have can still be used. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, but I will say your 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 question is on the right track because I do get questions from clients that I did work for 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, and they can't find their document. Um, And while attorneys are responsible for the documents they draft, we can't always be responsible for the existence of where they're kept. It's just just not a practical solution in this day and age. Yeah. Well, I am, like I said, a few years ago, I bought a fire safe, and it's not a particularly huge one. And I, of course, have um, two children that have created their own um, paperwork. And mm-hmm. basically what I do is I just, when I, I, I shove all the papers in and I real quick slam the door. <laughs> and I'm trying to, to see it, how right? much I can actually get in that little fire safe. <laughs> um, uh, but it's, yeah, it's... Uh, it sometimes it takes me two or three times to be fast enough to, with the door to get it to get it closed. But um, I you know, I I feel better knowing that it's there. And uh, the, the really important thing is that people let people in their lives know where they're keeping their documents, because sometimes people will put their important documents, not just their will or trust, but you know, but other important documents. And they won't tell anybody. They put it in a quote-unquote safe place. Oh, but God. oftentimes they put it in a safe place where nobody knows where it is. I mean, we all have to trust somebody sometime, right? Yeah. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I'm um, talking to Tony Moray. We are doing a new sponsored segment, Ask a Lawyer. We have more questions for Mr. Moray. We'll get to them right after this break. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. This is our new sponsored Ask a Lawyer segment that we're going to do once a month with Tony Moray. Uh, at the start of this segment, I opened up our phone lines, 773-763-9278. And uh, Tony, Ron from Chicago is calling in with a couple of questions for you. Hey, Ron, you're on with me and Tony. Go ahead with your question. Yes. Hi, Rob. How you doing? Uh, does a will necessarily have to be done by a lawyer? And also, at what point does a will become a legal document? Uh, good questions, Ron. Um, a, a will does not have to be drafted by a lawyer. Um, in Illinois, there are some statutory or legal requirements for what makes an appropriate will. It needs to be typewritten, for example. Um, I got a call last week. I was talking to an existing client. She happened to mention that her brother went online, pulled down a form where he wrote in by hand and filled in some of the information. That's not a valid will in the state of Illinois. Uh, It's called a handwritten or holographic will. The will needs to be typewritten. 
signed by the individuals whose will it is. There needs to be two witnesses that sign with their signature, their addresses, to attest that the person who signed the will was of sound mind, if you will. They understood what they were doing. Uh, So there are formalities, uh, but there is not a legal requirement that an attorney actually draft the will itself. And the second part, when when does a will become officially legal? Does it vary from state to state, Tony? Uh, Sure. Different states do have different requirements. Again, in their statutes and the laws of the state, um, they do do vary from state to state. But the will itself becomes valid when it's signed in front of those two witnesses. It's really kind of a it's kind of a ceremony, if you will, where this individual identifies themselves. Maybe they'll go to their bank or maybe they'll meet with a couple of friends and they'll say to those people who will be witnesses, this is my last will and testament. I'm, I'm in this document saying who will receive my property at the time I pass away. Uh, those people, if they feel it's appropriate, will then sign the document on witness line, put their address, and then it is a, a legally formed valid document. Any follow-up questions, Ron? Hello. Hello, Ron. Did that cover what you wanted to know? Yes. Uh, it, so it doesn't have to be notarized by anybody. No, it does not in Illinois. Some states require a notary. Illinois does not on the will itself. It, and it, some attorneys will put a notary uh, section in there. That's fine. It just under the statutes in Illinois, it doesn't it doesn't help or do anything more, if you will. All right. Okay. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Thank You're you welcome. for that, Ron. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, Tony, what is the difference between a will and a trust? Uh, it's a it's a great question, Joan, and it, it's kind of a long winded answer. I'll I'll kind of give that the highlight. Oh, that's okay. Go ahead, uh, yeah, be okay. as winded as uh, you wish. <laughs> well, I'm an attorney. I can do that, can't I? <laughs> um, um, you know, wills and trusts are two separate types of documents that will indicate where one's property should go upon their passing. Uh, you know, I just kind of described what a, what a valid will is. And then that will, uh, somebody will indicate where the property goes upon their passing. They may talk about some other things, funeral, burial arrangements, and whatnot. Once a will is signed, then it's in place. It's a legally enforceable document. Um, for many people in Illinois who have a will, once they pass away, if they're a state, and when I say they're a state, I mean assets that they own, maybe an investment account, a money market mutual fund account, uh, maybe an IRA account that maybe doesn't have beneficiaries on it, uh, value of real estate, um, maybe personal property that's worth money, maybe an old car that's worth money. It, if that estate has a, has a value of more than $100,000, then in Illinois, that estate will be probated, meaning... Uh, the estate has to go to probate court. The person named in the will as an executor is in charge of going to probate court. Probably the hired attorney, because it is somewhat complicated. They'll present the will and other associated documents to the judge, petition the judge to open a probate estate. With a probate estate, that estate itself, the assets, cannot be distributed to the people named in the will as beneficiaries or heirs. Uh, for a period of six months. And the probate estate is a, is a 
public process. Uh, again, Joe Smith passes away. He is a nosy neighbor, perhaps, that wants to go to court and see what Joe owned at the time of his death. He can do that because it's a public process. Um, so there probably, for most states, would be a probate process involved with a will. Many people will turn to a trust instead of a will because they want to avoid that probate process. They want to keep things private. The fundamental distinction between a will and a trust is a written document is that once the trust is drafted, and it may well have the same beneficiary designations, you know, assets split equally between uh, three children, let, let's just say. Um, but once the trust document is signed, then the assets you own, let's say a money market account, the name of the money market account will actually be changed from that person's individual name to the name of the trust. And other assets, real estate, will be changed over from that person's name to the name of the trust, which could be the, the Bob Smith 2023 Declaration of Trust, for example. Once those assets are changed over into the trust, the trust then is deemed to be the legal owner, in parentheses, of those, of those assets. When that person passes away, there's no probate process because the trust actually is the legal owner. Now, but going like, say, process, for your house, though, Tony, what if, and, like, I own, I own my own home? What if I do whatever legal paperwork is necessary to say, uh, put the names of my kids as co-owners of the house? Would I avoid, Mm -hmm. would the the worth of the house then be taken out of that equation? Um, Yes. If you put children on as co-owners of your house, then that estate would not go through probate if you just had a will. Okay. Um, and I will, I will give you a, a, just a, a really lawyerly and, and not personal comment about what happens sometimes when people put their children on assets. When you do that, your children become co-owners of that property. So they have a right to do certain things with that property that, let's say, maybe you would prefer they didn't do. You're making yeah, like if, like if I get to be old and uh, decide that I'm madly in love with somebody and my kids are like, whoa, there goes our um, there goes our future. You know, she maybe doesn't know what she's doing. We're co-owners of this house and we're not going to let her uh, add her new husband to the deed or something like that. That's a real good example. Yes. <laughs> and you, you don't see this all the time, but I have seen it happen uh, where people regret putting their children, or maybe a sibling, maybe it's not a child, maybe it's a brother or sister, um, on a property, all of a sudden they have created co-ownership of that property. Wow. And so, uh, you know, it's not my job to tell a client they shouldn't do this or shouldn't do that, but it certainly is my job to point out the, let's say, potential pitfalls, right? And the threshold for a probate court is $100,000. I mean, you know, these days with real estate inflation, I mean, even a very, very, very modest house is worth more than $100,000. That's right. That's right. And, and just a, a number of years ago, the threshold was 50000 Then they raised it to $100,000. You know, the probate court works, and the assets will go where they're supposed to go, but it is time-consuming. And for a family, 
let's say, let's say a, a couple who has adult children. And one question I need to ask, because it's my job, is, do your children get along? And most of the time people say, yeah, they get along great, or they get along well enough. You know, they're fine. But sometimes people will say, you know, my children don't really get along. And there's a number of reasons for that. Mm -hmm. If a a state ends up in probate court, that's the place where oftentimes those children that don't get along will decide they want to argue. And it's a very, very expensive place to argue. Uh, And and, that's... that's a worst case scenario, but yeah. it is one factor. But, you know, everybody perhaps. thinks that's never going to happen to them. Um, by the way, what about if you have a life insurance policy? Let's say I have $100,000 of life insurance and my beneficiaries on a 50-50 split are my son and my daughter. Does that money get held up till the estate goes through probate? No, it does not go through probate. That's, that's a really good example. Life insurance that has beneficiaries. Uh, will not go through probate. Okay, but it, it, it's part of the it's part of the estate planning process. Whether somebody decides they want a will or a trust or whatever it is, that is the time for people to check beneficiary designations on life insurance, retirement plans, IRAs. Uh, you know anything they have from an employer, and some of those plans they've had for a number of years. And some people, well, nobody looks at those documents all the time. Sometimes they're not sure who those beneficiaries are. <laughs> yeah. I had a client a couple of years ago with a, a real nice corporate um, uh, retirement plan that he had. It was it was over a million dollars, and he called me back up one day and said, "You know, I got to tell you, I looked and there was no beneficiary named." Yeah, uh, people are texting me in right now, Tony. Uh, sadly, we're we're like we've got like you know forty five seconds left. But one person is saying they're an executor of an estate. There's eight kids, and they said it's like herding cats. Um, one person says that um, the estate was supposed to be split between three siblings. One sibling refuses to cash her check. I mean, there. We. Uh, I'm going to save yeah. some of these. I'm sorry that they they came in so late, but I will save these for next time because there are people have a lot of things to say and a lot of questions about this. So, Tony, thank you for being here today, and I look forward to our chat in December. That sounds great, Joan. Thank you so much for having me, and I appreciate uh, speaking with you and your audience. Yes. And happy um, holidays to everybody. Happy holidays to everybody, too. I'm going to uh, pull off some of these questions and comments and put them in a file so that when Tony comes back here in December, um, we can we can get to all of this. That's going to do it for me today. Driving at Home with Patty Vasquez is next. I will see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Have a great evening, kids. Good night. 